This episode is brought to you by Twist Endings. It's often said that history is just one darn thing after another. Wouldn't it be better if someone were there to introduce a radical change in direction or the expected outcome in a way that made you completely reevaluate everything that happened before? For example, wouldn't it be great if a victim telling his story to the police was actually a master criminal who was improvising the whole thing based on random nearby objects? Or if the dying words of a bigger-than-life celebrity was just something he read on a sled when he was a kid? Or if you found out you'd been dead all along and didn't know it? Actually, none of those things are especially ideal. The good news is that you don't buy the wonderful products at Twist Endings for yourself. You buy them for other people in order to enjoy their thrilling reactions when they discover, surprise, their whole life was a child's dream. Boy, you've never seen a birthday party liven up like when the honoree discovers the kid he adopted is really a middle-aged little person. And right now, when our listeners order a deluxe life-altering shockeroo, they can try out Twist Ending's new product for free, Parapatea, a sudden reversal of fortune or drastic change in circumstances. Imagine this, your friend opens the present. Will he win a million dollars? Will he discover he's married his mother? Oh man, everyone will be on tender hooks at the party when you give Parapatea. Hey, maybe he'll actually end up on tender hooks. It's another fun family celebration from the people at Twist Endings. And thank you, Twist Endings, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Well, Craig, the totally non-book of the New Sun conversation with Mark was a pretty big hit for listeners. And not surprisingly. Yeah. We broke the record for downloads for a single episode in 24 hours. That previous record was set by Joan Gordon, which means, of course, we need to bring Joan back to do a chapter with us. Yep. She can get some of her own back. Get her title back. Yep. That's right. I did mention that on Facebook, I think, somewhere that we needed to keep that quiet, though, because otherwise it's like, <laughs> Mark, she goes big enough as it is. So well, now it's out of the bag. And we should say, we're going to talk say a little bit more about it, but this week is not a chapter from Book of the New Sun. We're actually at a nice little turning point where Severian is just about to leave the guild for good. And we wanted to do an episode this time about a larger approach to the books that will inform a lot of the things that we've taken. We're not going to be exclusively about this all the, all the time from here on out. Let me say that right up front, that this is not like, even though we are going to outline a theory in the main body of the episode today, we're not going to only be talking about this from here on out, not by any stretch of the imagination, but it was fun enough that we wanted to talk about it. So that's one reason why, if you're looking at the title of this episode, it doesn't have a chapter title in it because it's not a, Book of the New Sun chapter again. But we'll say more about exactly what it is. First, we want to do the comments, and then we'll give you a really quick rundown of what it is we're going to talk about. And then if you want to listen <laughs> to all the nitty-gritty <laughs> details, where we also have Michael Andre Ducey come and talk with us, too, about this theory, then we'll get into that. But first, we right. need to talk about comments that we've had this last week. Yeah. Oh, oh, we also had a couple of great milestones this month. 
we passed the six month for that's right the podcast demonstrating our ability to make a snap inadvisable decision and push on regardless <laughs> it wasn't too snap i mean we talked for a couple <laughs> months before we actually put it out i think that's pretty good also with 18 episodes under our belt we topped 10,000 downloads and that's pretty cool i'm pretty proud of that that's pretty good because that's Way more people listening than I thought would. So you guys out there, thank you so much for joining on with us and listening to us ramble for a long time because we do ramble for a long time. I think our average episode is what, like an hour and a half? Yeah. And yeah. that's leaving out a whole bunch of stuff that we <laughs> nip. Um, and that's assuming that we're not talking about the really involved chapters. Right. <laughs> yeah. And especially when I think what each chapter is usually like, what, six, seven pages? Yes. So we really squeeze a lot out of it. So so thanks if we we don't bore ourselves, but I know we're we were worried a little while about about, you know, droning on too long. But I guess if Craig used to really struggle to try to get the episodes down to an hour to one hour. So that yep. no one would be tempted to run away. I think I completely failed at that pattern on chapter two. I think chapter two was where I did <laughs> not make an hour and haven't since. So. <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's really fun and encouraging. And again, thanks to everybody for listening and for putting up with us and for especially for interacting, whether it's the emails or on Facebook or anything else, leaving reviews. We really do appreciate that. But also just because we want to get your ideas in here, too, because like we've always said, one thing we really wanted to do with this was try to get back to a little bit of the feel of the old Earth list with lots of feedback and lots of different approaches. And exactly. we've just felt really good that we've been able to get that also hey craig you got a new toy in the mail this month the best toy for any liberal arts academic a big stack of literary criticism i did i've been trying to get my hands on every single thing that's been written about wolf um, with the possible exception of every review that's out there that's just this is way too many but in terms of every scholarly article or essay um, i'm working on a bibliography that i'm going to share with everyone once we get it organized and, and done and in a situation that we can put out there just because i feel like that's a good thing for everybody to have probably the one single place where there was a lot written about wolf Reviews, but also just essays and even early drafts of things that have been published elsewhere was New York Review of Science Fiction, which if you don't know what that is, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful publication that's been going since the 80s. Now is only in PDF form, the electronic version. But what they do is they publish essays and reviews about science fiction. And it's one that actually a lot of sci-fi writers participate in. So you'll get things all the time. Like there'll be a review of Michael Swanwick book, but then Swanwick will also be writing an editorial and something else in there too. And you have sci-fi writers reviewing other people's books, excellent stuff and really high quality. So they have published a lot of things on Wolf and I put in an order of a hundred issues, I think it was, um, or slightly over so that I could get every single thing that had been written about Wolf. And, and there weren't actually a hundred. I had to fill it up. So there's stuff about John Crowley that I got to and, and some good Ursula K. Le Guin stuff. But yeah, it was a wonderful big stack of stuff all about different people writing on Wolf. So Borsky's stuff, Michael Andrew stuff, um, and a lot of essays that have never appeared anywhere else. So that's fun. I'm in the process of reading through that and organizing it and taking some notes and getting it all put in the bibliography. So let's go ahead and uh, get into the comments and complaints. Let's see. Uh, Bernard Stockerman's reached out to us on email regarding angles that we missed in chapter 14. Terminus Est. 
specifically the similarity between the name and Jesus's last words on the cross. He says, in the Vulgate, Jesus actually says, consummatum est, that is, it is finished, or it has been consummated, or it's completed. I think this fits with the other crucifixion references that you pointed out, shouldering the pateresa, etc. Bernard thinks it's like the other instances where Wolf makes well-known religious concepts sound strange. Religious concepts that might otherwise be familiar to us, like conciliator for mediator and showbread for Eucharist. He says, it also seems to me a reminder that we are reading a translation. Severian reads the ancient words on the blade and translates them into his own language, as this is the line of division. Typhon's translation is different, but presumably valid. Gene Wolfe translates both Severian and Typhon's versions into English and invents the Latin sword name Terminus Est, which covers both translations pretty well. But he cannot say what the original language was. And for Bernard, this reminds him a bit like the game of where you Google translate a phrase through various different languages and back <laughs> and to see what you get. We're left knowing only that the name of the sword is something like Terminus S, but not quite. I think it's a very valid point. That's good. So Cody Martin reached out to us on email. He has a very interesting reading of the mist that's on the river when Severian crosses the bridge in chapter 14. He says, I'm surprised you guys didn't think of the story of Max Alindus's uncle. That's a story that takes place at the end of Citadel of the Autark when Severian, he's now the Autark, he's got Rosha and Droda with him, and they're sailing down the guile and they encounter this ship and the, the uncle hears voices of women under the water or out in the water. He says, I'm surprised you guys didn't think of the story of Max Alindus's uncle told when the Locage brought up the ghost stories on the river. Both mention it being foggy, windless night. Since this is the night Severian gets his undying dream, it's clear he's talking about the, this, this next chapter, chapter 15, when he's in bed with Baldanders. Since this is the night that Severian gets his undying dream, it's clear that foggy, windless nights mean that there are undines in the river. And he says... I'm not sure why, though. <laughs> if Jaterna can go unseen in broad daylight to save Severian, then they would need fog cover at night to stay hidden. I've been playing with the idea that the two foggy nights are temporarily connected. This line from Max Alindus's uncle makes me think something more is going on. But last night, sometimes I felt like I wasn't on Old Guyol at all, but on some other river, one that runs up into the sky or under the ground. If his feeling is correct, Cody says, then the conversation between the undines he was eavesdropping on took place outside of time. These two nights are also connected by being the nights that Severian leaves and returns to the Citadel. We know that Jaterna promises to travel back in time to save Severian from drowning in Earth. I believe that Jaterna's time traveling leaves a door open for anyone to accidentally wander through. Well, that's, you know, that's really, really interesting. The only reason why Jaterna might not need a fog to cover her tracks in the guile outside of the Citadel is because perhaps 
you know, it's covered by nenophars mm-hmm. and she's just laying low during the day. Could be. Could be. I although I don't I, I would like the idea that a foggy night is always something that indicates that they're there. That would be that yeah, would be nice yeah. catch. Yeah, I'll have, have to keep an eye out for yeah, that though. Yeah. Stephen Frug has some comments on chapter twelve. And I can do the Frug. Uh, the chapter on Thecla's excruciation and Severian's betrayal. He has whew, a full half dozen additional stuff. First, we were wondering whether excruciation always implied an ultimate execution. Stephen says, no. And he has some evidence to back it up. He says, quote, at the very end of Citadel, chapter 23, when Severian sees Palamon, who doesn't yet know who he is, just that he's the autarch, and there's this exchange. Were you confined here? You have suffered torment, I see. He's a Severian scarred on the face. But it's too crude, I hope, for our work. And Severian says, it was not your doing. Nevertheless, we were confined for a time in the oubliette beneath the tower. So Stephen says, if torture always meant death, Palamon would have assumed, rather than hoping, that it could not be their work. Nor does he express surprise, only sadness, in finding out the autark had been confined there. Well, and I, I agree with that. I do have to say the one question I have is not so much whether, now that I'm thinking about it, not so much whether everyone gets killed eventually, but whether or not anyone gets released. Because the assumption, or at least the feeling I definitely got from all the chapters at the beginning was that most of the time what happens is that prisoners are brought there and then kind of forgotten. And, I and, seem to kind of remember that. Severian says that it happens, but it's very rare. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that Stephen's point that is proven, though, in this yeah. exchange. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. He also says, did you mention the connection between the word excruciate, which Severian uses, as you noted, and the Latin word for crucify? I feel like you did, but I can't quite remember. No, I don't think we did. That That was pretty dense of us, really. Right, but I right. I was we talked about think... the excruciation device, the kite. Right, I think that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Is surely the cross, but anyway. Yeah, thanks for but that. no, but no. So that's definitely something that yeah, again, is one of those fun issues of translation, right? I mean, where <laughs> where you know the word that Gene Wolfe uses to translate quote unquote whatever word is being there also has these connotations in English, mm-hmm. and. I would say that obviously as in the real world, yeah, he's definitely hoping that we get some of that connection as well and that association. Uh, then Stephen says, you talk about how Gerloise talk as they walk Thecla to her excruciation about how torturers obey is a message to Severian, obey or else. But of course, it is on a more basic level also Wolf preparing the reader to be properly shocked by Severian's actions. The level of betrayal was implicit, but Wolf wants to make it explicit. Well, I mean, it can have that effect, but I really think it really only works on a reread because we don't actually get the secret of the torturers that it is to obey until much later. Mm-hmm. I come to think of it, Stephen's point suggests that Wolf might have sacrificed some potential emotional energy in this scene by making it Wolfian and keeping the secret from us until sort of Lichter. Wolf could have used it to heighten the emotion of Severian's betrayal, but he opted instead to hold on to it, to use it for emotion in another scene. 
which is not to say I don't like the framing that Stephen gave it. I absolutely do, but it kind of does re- require active framing on the part of the reader. Wolf doesn't just hand feed us that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But based on this, it's you know it's not really a correction. Stephen offers a minor critique that we, uh, mostly me, really quote have a tendency to forget that the surface level has to work too. Things can be both, of course, but the surface level is also important. You can't use, but why would this happen as a justification for a bizarre theory? If there's a straightforward first reading storytelling explanation, since that's why. Well, Stephen, not for every bizarre theory. (laughs) But no, but I'm I'm guilty of that, too, because I think that part of the nature of how we're doing this, of taking one chapter and going very, very slowly, mm-hmm. is that you start to sometimes miss the forest for the trees. Right. Uh, just because we're, we're you know, looking so deeply. Yeah. And there have been a, a few times where people have reminded us, hey, the real reason that happened is just, you know, character <laughs> and emotion <laughs> and like a story yeah. to be told. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you he had to do that. That was the next big thing to to pay off. Yeah. 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 And and I'm guilty of that too. And yeah, <laughs> in... <laughs> well, when when I dig deep, it is easy to forget that there is a flat reading. Sometimes, sometimes there's a flat. Yeah, still, you know, Wolf does construct scenes to lie to us. Mm-hmm. He does construct them in ways that are that seem to give us the sense that one thing is happening when really something else is happening. Uh, however, we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Sometimes the most literal reading, even in a wolf story, can be the right one. And we'll see how many people think that at the end of this episode. Stephen moves on to chapter 13, The Lictor of Thrax. He says, you talk about Severian's remark about how time turns our lies into truth and said you couldn't think of any parallels. Auden says somewhere, I know this because Samuel R. Delaney quotes him, to this effect in several places, but I don't know where in Auden, that humans are such that they have to pretend to be something before they can actually be it. So that's one. Yeah, I'm not familiar with either of those, but it does sound like something Wolf has embraced. Yeah, he sent me on a little, he and I were looking for the actual source uh, of that. So we had, we, we're going through, it's from one of Delaney's uh, memoirs. I think it was, hmm. it. oh shoot, is it more Motion of Light and Water? Uh, I can't remember now exactly what it was. I think it was Motion of Light and Water, which, by the way, if you haven't read Delaney's journals, I mean, if you've if you've read like Nova and famous stories and things like that, definitely take a look at his journals, too, because the dude lived a fascinating life, <laughs> um, especially of New York in the 60s. Mm. And then uh, Stephen says, your interpretation of since then, I have recalled those words often, though they were but my own and they have been a comfort to me in many troubles was a bit strained. I think you apply it to the preceding sentence. I despised myself at that moment far more than I did the guild, but to me, it clearly applies to the words he said to Palamon. That is such a position is far too high for me. Why were they a comfort to him? I think it's quite simple in hard times. He was ever tempted to say, why is this happening to me or woe is me? He would say to himself, you deserve worse. And because he despises himself for betraying his surrogate family, he believes it or did enough to recall the belief. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yep. 
And finally, Stephen noted that the position of Carnifex usually goes to a condemned prisoner who is saved if they are willing to take the job. But Severian himself is basically precisely that. He has been condemned and is spared if he will take this job. Stephen is open to the idea that his execution might not happen, even if he refuses, since Palamon clearly wants to avoid it. But it's not usually someone like this, but instead it's Severian, someone exactly like this. Right. And I think you're totally right there. Fruit's totally right. I think I just had in my head the idea of like, you know, taking some thief, some common thief and saying, okay, if you just chop off somebody's head, Mm -hmm. we'll give you a thing. And I, and then, you know, Severian becomes like an administrator. And I was like, those are different things, but that I think that may have been my assumption. Right. Too much about what they were. Yeah. Fair point. Regarding chapter 13, the Lictor of Thrax, Rasan Majors agrees that Palamon's reasons for not executing Severian are pretty thin. He says Severian was not the only torturer with mercy in his heart. The real story is Palamon didn't want to execute Severian. Everyone agrees with that. He points out that, quote, sending a torturer forth to represent the guild, even as a carnifex, is a position of honor, especially given the lack of production recognition of the torturers through the world and the gift of Terminus Est was Palamon's treasure. Given Palamon's history, Rasan thinks that he must have expected Severian to be a master one day. And I think that's true. He he almost says as much when Severian returns to the tower. But I think it's interesting that when Severian gets there, people seem to do think it's a sort of a position of honor, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily considered a position of honor in the culture of the of the guild. Mm-hmm. Razan proposed that the Megatherians are rogue AIs, and you weren't too impressed by that. But to tell you the truth, I've always wondered whether the Megatherians are all one thing. You know, some could be immortal giants like Baldanders hopes to be, but some could be cultures in ships, and others could be hive life forms of the sort that we can only imagine. Mm-hmm. And I've always had just the Cthulhu call out sort of stuck in my head that's there there's some kind of cosmic space monster or something like that but totally rasan and a few other people have started to on reddit have started to talk about whether or not they're just different versions of the hieroduels are they like fallen hieroduels in, in certain sense are the hieroduels the ais that syriaca talks about could have been there i mean there are suggestions that all of those are are certainly possibilities I think. And then especially once you layer on how the uh, AI personalities of the quote unquote gods work in Long Sun and that Scylla is one of those and also mentioned as one of the uh, monsters, even though she only gets one line, one mention in all of New Sun. But there's that connection there. So, yeah, I think it's definitely something that that we probably should consider in more detail. Yeah. And if anyone is really likes the Megatherians in this story, I recommend that you check out Wolf's An Evil Guest because I feel like he repackaged a lot of things, not just the giant sea monsters in that story that from the Book of the New Sun, uh, most particularly uh, Jalinta. But uh, anyway, Greg, you put up a Reddit post uh, last week, I guess, and 
It's got a lot of attention. So much good stuff. I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. This is just a kind of tiny thing here too, but speaking of Reddit, it's kind of fun that we know from email. I won't say who it was, but there was an email person who's been emailing us who was like, well, I haven't been really involved in the online discussions, but you guys made me want to. And so they started a Reddit <laughs> account and have been posting a lot in there, which is really pretty cool. Pretty cool oh, yes. Things. Well, okay. Well, I won't name this person, but he posted some of his theories over email. And I said, this is a lot of good stuff. I don't know how I can pick over this in the comments. You should put this on Reddit so people can really, you know, go after it. And he did. And I'll put, it's a the subreddit handle is goon hands and I'll uh, put a link to those. Cool. Also via email, the internaut is thinking about house Azure and has a curiositas earthus of his slash her own about why the autarch is working there as a pimp. Internaut says, the question we ought to have asked, who is a visitor to the house Azure? I think it is the class of people the autarch most wishes to keep monitored. I suspect the Kaibits are literally milking the seed of the ruling class who are possible competitors to the autarch. And basically his idea is that they're basically somehow secretly grabbing the DNA and information <laughs> and putting it into an Alzabo stew and the autarch is, is, you know, imbibing it and finding out all their secrets. It could be. I mean, think about how the house Azure has to work as to make its claim on people or to, to be desirable for people. You have to know who those women are, who the concubines are in the first place and know something about them in order to be sort of excited by the Kaibits and the clones. And, you know, we're, we're talking about something that's happening in the Citadel and then you get far away and people didn't even know that the Citadel exists. So this would be by the same token, you have people in the Citadel who would have to know about what's going on in the house absolute far away and still want to do it. Yeah. It seems like it's a very narrow market <laughs> is what, what the house Azure is really going for. Um, <laughs> well, yes, I'm thinking though, still why there, uh, Thea calls the Citadel, the swamps of Nessus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just to, like internet asked who is going to the house Azure. It's just hard to imagine that the Algedonic Quarter is some kind of hub for the high and mighty of the exalted families. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's maybe intermingling with optimates and low-rent armagers. Yeah. It's hard to know, too. That's, that's where you start to get into that area where it's like, you know, how detailed world building did Wolf had sort of mm -hmm. mapped out behind all this stuff? And it's hard to know. Did he just like the idea of the autark working as a pimp? Mm -hmm. Possible. Mm -hmm. Oh, Nigel referred to some connectivity threads between the book of the new sun and David Lindsay's uh, voyage to Arcturus. And there's definitely some time looping in both. I really, really like that. So I've been going back and rereading a voyage to Arcturus. And I wanted to do that too. Nigel and I have been talking a while about connections between Wolf and Edmund Spencer and the fairy queen, which is an allegorical narrative poem and something, which is something that is very near and dear to my heart. But when he mentioned David Lindsay in Voyage to Arcturus, that seemed right up the, the similar kind of direction. And then it also made me think, um, I've been wondering a little bit too about Olaf Stapleton. And I don't know if Gene Wolfe ever read Stapleton and Starman or the the very long, oh shoot, the first and the last man 
um, which is a sort of speculative history of humanity throughout the cosmos. And we're, especially when we're mm. talking about deep time, but those kind of allegorical science fiction or fantasy books and poems are all something that I've been trying to figure out a way to tie together in my mind. And uh, it's nice to see that other people are making those same connections. Oh, we got an Apple podcast review. That's awesome. E.E. Patty says, good podcast. Well, that's terrific, E.E. Patty. Thanks for listening. (laughs) It's short, but we'll take it. Now, on to our list. Oh, wait. (laughs) He also says, but not as good as Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast or Al Zabo Soup. What? (laughs) (laughs) Rude. Well, you know, that's not terrible. Three stars is not hating it. We're the babies. Too. We're the babies <laughs> on the block. He's just saying, you know, that he, she likes the other guys more. And I like those guys too. Actually, I appreciate constructive criticism. I promise that if you write a one star review, we will read that too, if it's not especially <laughs> profanity laced. <laughs> You know, we'll also read the five-star reviews. I mean, no, don't put that. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we will do that. You don't have to give us a one-star review. I mean, we'll read those with more enthusiasm. That's for sure. <laughs> that's true. Well, anyway, we should see what he has to say. Um, let's start with the positive stuff. Any Wolf fan podcast immediately gets my ear space. And I like that these guys get straight to the point. Well, we do do that, Craig. Yes. And it ends with, that's not to say that there's nothing to love here. Ouch. <laughs> that they managed to get some really fascinating takes from prominent Wolf scholars is probably the best single thing. You'd be surprised, EE, what a pickup truck and a couple of jumper cables can do. <laughs> now to the downsides. He says, um, there are a couple of issues I take. Actually, EE, there are more than a couple of issues here. I do not find the hosts as charismatic as the other two podcasts. Yeah, well, that's not really an issue. Charisma's, you know, a gift. We'll have to just muddle through, I guess. Or it's a it's a random dice roll if you're a D and D player. Just yeah, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. What you get? The auto quality is sometimes lacking. Okay, very true. I got a second EE on that, Craig. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's the guest. Well, when and when we started too, I mean, we even talked about how we bought you a new microphone, you know, after a few episodes and things like right. that. Right. So, and we were yeah. figuring out how to do it. And I mean, we're in different parts of the country when we're recording. <laughs> so so that's one thing. Just yeah, if you if you sort of imagined us sitting here in the same room talking to each other, actually, no. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, we're in the same room talking to each other through Dixie Cups. Right. So. <laughs> but but yeah, so a little bit of a learning curve on that. Yeah. And as soon as those sponsor checks start arriving, we'll <laughs> go ahead and upgrade everybody's equipment. So next, there are far, far too many musical interludes. Hey, Mr. DJ, I thought you said we had a deal. I... Hmm. Craig, since EE says musical interludes, I suppose we're not talking about the outro music, which is good because I'd as soon burn down this podcast. <laughs> This must refer to the Curiositas Earthus music, the errata intros, and I suppose Stephen Frug's theme music. <laughs> well, I like the little Curiositas Earthus music, so I'm going to keep playing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, all these actually do have a purpose. We think the errata is important. 
we need to correct any misinformation right away. And I figured that we should somehow highlight them when they arrive, give them their own little space. The same is true with the Curiositus Earthus. When one of us is going to proffer some non-consensus theory, we should make it clear that we're doing that. And and when we're going to recite someone else's non-canon theory, I thought we should you know break yeah. it off from the main discussion. And you know Stephen Frug's theme music that came with Mr. Frug, so I don't know <laughs> what to do about. And that. let's admit too, it's fun to have little sound editing toys and play with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I just like Mr. Frug. So. But I have an open mind. Uh, EE goes on, and some of the host's theories are straight up crackpot. Craig, I warned you about that. <laughs> now, now, come on. Without the crackpot theories, it would be all musical interludes. <laughs> and then we have another problem. So, yeah, <laughs> we definitely are adding that section to it. Um, and that that's part of the thing of going back to the Earth list. Of We want to sprinkle a lot of that stuff in for fun, sometimes just for the fun of it and sometimes to see where it leads. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so we definitely, I mean, definitely compared to some of the other guys, we definitely have a lot more speculative on the edge kind of things. And yeah, that's that's right. kind of what we're what we're doing. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking, speaking of someone who would never be on the show, I don't think, because I don't know if he's still around, but Roy Lackey, you know, had the same reaction yeah. on the Earth list. At any time, he's like, God, another another crazy <laughs> yeah. way off the top kind of thing yeah <laughs> this so. might actually be roy lackey <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um but yeah so so definitely it's not necessarily to, to everyone's taste and i mean here we are doing a whole show right now about in a few minutes here about you know one of those theories but then we'll get back to the, to the yeah that's right you might want to skip this one e. right but that's fair and that's you know again if that's something that really is irritating then then yeah maybe maybe we're not the right the right yeah, one probably so yeah, it is. It is funny. This should come up on this episode. <laughs> Musical interludes, sound quality, crack pottery. Craig, I'm feeling singled out here. Why are there no complaints about soulful, very white quality of the voice of one of the hosts or his overly rational skepticism? That can be very annoying. <laughs> yeah. But no, we do appreciate that though. I mean, we, I know you and I, James, have both asked other people and friends, what do we do that's irritating? Do we have verbal tics? What do we do? Cause <laughs> you know, it's so different to say it and edit it than it is to, to just listen to it. So yeah. So, you know, definitely we would love if there is something, I mean, very honestly, if there is something that does kind of turn you off or you're sort of on the edge of being like, oh yeah, I want to hear what they have to say, but this thing about the experience takes me out of it. Let us know. Yeah, um, because like with with verbal tics or with whatever else, they're things that we don't necessarily consciously do. So let us know. Yeah. So if anyone else is annoyed by musical interludes, the unbridled theory spinning or other euphemisms for me, anything we can do to make this 60 to 90 minutes more enjoyable, just let us know. Usual ways. Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, email or, you know, do an Apple podcast review. I don't know if we can change. I don't know if we can address all of EE's concerns. If we could do a show like those other guys, I'm sure we would have done it. But, you know, let us know if we're grading on you. Even the seekers of truth and penitence asked for feedback on their work, I'm sure. So, <laughs> by the way, if you haven't had a problem with us yet, this show will be your opportunity. <laughs> As... <laughs> 
As I mentioned on Facebook, this episode will make us famous or cause us to get a cease and desist letter from Tor Publications. <laughs> but I will say, coming up, what we'll talk about has, for me personally, made this process over the last six months truly worth it. The careful read, the interaction from others, this is, for me, where it paid off. Well, I think we should stop selling this and give it to the people. All right. So what we're going to be talking about is the first Severian. And we're calling it the first Severian theory just because that's what Severian calls it at the end of Citadel of the Autark. And there's a passage there, which we will read here in just a second. Um, but the, I, I want to real quickly sort of lay out just in a couple sentences for you what it is. You can decide then if you want to listen to our speculations or if you want to just wait for the next chapter episode. But basically the idea is this. The Severian who's writing the Book of the New Sun is not the first Severian. That there has been a previous Severian who has lived a life and is now behind the scenes manipulating, obviously through time travel, this Severian so that his life turns out better and basically becomes the the kind of Severian that we see who has is the conciliator and who can eventually bring the new sun. We're taking that part, that approach very literally and trying to see if it makes sense of certain puzzles or if it causes extra problems or if it, as I think we both think it does right now, actually clarifies a lot of things um, that are sort of still mysterious about Book of the New Sun. That's the basic idea. We wanted to lay it out and really talk about it a lot for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're going to refer to it as we go through some other things in the, the later chapters. And we just kind of wanted a, a, a nice place where we could do it rather than having to mention it every time we brought it up. Um, but also it's something that Michael Andre is really interested in. And we thought that would just be another good excuse to get him back on the show. So that's where we're going to go now. So welcome everyone. This is kind of a little special episode. Normally we do, you know, we pick a chapter and we, we talk about it. In this case, we're not doing that because this is a reading from the last chapter of the entire Book of the New Sun series. And in maybe in a perfect world, we would have started with reading this particular section since it is, this is a rereading of the book. And in this case, it is Severian telling us, um, giving us a hint into what was going on through this whole book. It was kind of a twist ending, although it didn't ever read that way to me until just very recently. But you know, there's really no good point place to put it in. So we're going to, we're putting it here at the end of chapter 14 as Severian leaves the Citadel for the first time into the wider world. And this gives us an opportunity to kind of talk about this. The other thing about it is that I think that it's made you and I both really rethink a whole lot of things that we've started to start to talk about a little bit and some of the episodes that we're recording further and definitely a lot of the stuff that we talk about behind the scenes. But we wanted to go ahead and bring it up now because it's probably something we're going to start mentioning more and more. And it's less of our own crazy theory and really more of trying to really straightforwardly deal with a lot of the things that happen in the very last chapter of Citadel that specifically relate to a lot of the earlier things that happen. So we thought it might be really worthwhile to take a break 
kind of talk about one larger approach to the books that we have that we think really makes a whole lot more sense of rereading. And it's the kind of thing where, of course, everybody knows that the very last few chapters of Citadel sort of give you a whole dump of different sort of insights into things that were going on behind the scenes. And we really want to bring some of that stuff up front so that we can see how the early chapters and the other books relate to that. Right. And we were talking to Michael Andre Dreese over email. Hi, Michael. Hello. He's here with us. <laughs> and he began to repeatedly reference a reading on the text that I thought I understood, but the truth is, you know, I didn't. So I began to drill him on it. And I don't think there's any way to move into this gratefully. So I think we're just going to read the relevant passage. Like I said, it's from the final chapter of Citadel of the Autark. It's entitled Resurrection. You can see how circular that is, because the first chapter of the whole book is Resurrection and Death. The passage is regarding Severian's discussion of the first Severian. So from chapter 38 of Citadel. Before you assume that I've cheated, you read again, as I will write again. Two things are clear to me. The first is that I am not the first Severian. Those who walked the corridors of time saw him gain the phoenix throne, and thus it was that the autarch, having been told of me, smiled in the house azure, and the undine thrust me up when it seemed I must drown. Yet surely the first Severian did not. Something had already begun to reshape my life. Let me guess now, though it's only a guess, at the story of that first Severian. He too was reared by the torturers, I think. He too was sent forth to Thrax. He too fled Thrax, and though he didn't carry the claw of the conciliator, he must have been drawn to the fighting in the north. No doubt he hoped to escape the Archon by hiding himself among the army. How he encountered the Autark there, I cannot say, but encounter him he did, and so even as I, he, who in the final sense was and is myself, became Autark in turn, and sailed beyond the candles of night. Then those who walked the corridors walked back to the time when he was young, and my own story, as I've given it here in so many pages, began. The second thing is this. He was not returned to his own time, but became himself a walker of the corridors. I know now the identity of the man called the Head of Day, and why Hildegrin, who was too near, perished when we met, and why the witches fled. I know too in whose mausoleum I tarried as a child, that little building of stone with its rose its fountain, and its flying ship all graven. I have disturbed my own tomb, and now I go to lie in it. Okay, so here is why I never properly appreciated this passage. And I don't think I'm alone in this. My interpretation of this is that was that the first Severian was future Severian, who would travel back in time to be conciliator, to be Apu Punchao, the head of the day, the, to be the man in the tomb. To Severian, he's the first Severian because he came first, came before, but actually he's Severian's future. There are elements to this interpretation that just really don't work, but heck, you know, what's the practical value of this knowledge anyway? What can I do with it? So, and I don't think I'm unique in this, this paragraph just kind of sat on my mental desk like a perpetual motion machine that runs but doesn't actually do anything. And like I said, I, I didn't properly appreciate this. I didn't appreciate the direct implications of this theory. All right. So, Michael. Yes. When you initially referenced the first Severian, that is how I understood it. 
But then uh, drilling down and asking more questions, I realized that you had an actually a, a very different take on the first Severian. The th theory of yours doesn't seem to be detailed in the Earth list, right? I, I never read it there. It seems I think you must have first detailed it in the Genie listserv because Jeff Wilson did kind of reference it on the Earth list in the late nineties. Ah. So this interpretation has been bouncing around for 25 <laughs> years. Is that right? <laughs> well, kind of unstated, really undetailed, but you know, you didn't beat it like a drum. And so it memory hold. And when I began interrogating you over, over it, I'll say I found it just incredibly appealing at a literary level, at a symbolic level, and very, very much at a plot. Yay. Level. Actually, Actually, there's several puzzles in these initial chapters of Shadow of the Torture that Craig and I have beat around on this podcast since the beginning that easily, easily are resolved with this reading, this proper reading, in my opinion. So just to make it clear what we're talking about, uh, Michael, why don't you, why don't you describe your oh, understanding? No, 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 no. You describe it. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds so exciting. <laughs> Here's the idea. When Severian grew up originally, it was in the Madison Tower. The sun was dying. The heroes and the autarch ruled over the Commonwealth. And so did the, and the Megatherians ruled over the rest of the world. But here's the thing. There was no religion of the conciliator. There was no claw of the conciliator. Severian was banished from the torturers. We're not told why. He made his way to Thrax, just as we've read, but the path was inevitably different from the one we've read because the whole world was different at a very fundamental level. He fled Thrax. We're not told why. He travels north, but not to find the Pelerines because there are no Pelerines, because there is no claw. And he ends up in the wars, just as we read. But, you know, remember any or all the details in between these plot points have might have been very different. He encounters the Autark by chance, not by design, and he becomes Autark. And then he takes the test. And what happens there? Severian doesn't say, but I think we can guess it. I think he must have passed the test, brought the new son, and we'll readdress that assumption if we encounter any paradoxes. But in Citadel, Severian says the first Severian sailed beyond the candles of night. And if he didn't pass the test, then he couldn't use the power of the white fountain to walk the corridors of time and to address, to announce the coming of the new sun. So then he does travel back in time to be the conciliator, the head of the day character. And Severian says he understands why Hildegrind was killed. And I want to talk about that maybe. That it's possible that this paragraph was tweaked with the understanding that Wolf was going to write the Earth of the New Sun and explain some things. And anyway, at last he buried, he was buried in his mausoleum outside the citadel in the jungles, far north of Nessus at that time, probably. But before his death, he does something else. And this is why Severian knows about it. He also goes back in time and tinkers with his own timeline. How's that? Right, right. So I guess 
a lot of this could be uh, covered by in my um, chapter guide that the first book postlude number one talking about the first severian is where I I kind of outline uh, some of this stuff but right so it's just to from what the text that was read it does suggest that the first one was raised by the torturers and all that stuff but but it's very specific that he didn't carry the claw and right. so basically you end up with the idea that the first severian somehow became autark and sailed off without all that external stuff going on and that as a right. result of him succeeding then the time travelers start coming back and messing with it and then then the question is you know how many different factions are there and and what are they what are they doing well yeah but one thing we know they're not trying to stop the coming of the new sun or maybe actually it is possible that they could but one thing that that abaya knows because he apparently is a walker in the corridors of time one thing that the kakajins know is because they're traveling backwards from that moment they know that he has achieved the new sun right right so whatever they're doing they're they're working with the with the understanding that it has occurred. Even though at times it seems like they are working for the other side in, in the case where, yeah. yeah, those, those three in the, in the flying saucer are, they're helping uh, Baldanders uh, by giving him hints and toys to play with and stuff like that. So it, it's almost like, I mean, on the one hand you could say, well, they, they don't want to overplay too much. So they, they're trying to do some kind of balance or something or. Right. They want him to, fa- they want him to fail because he's going to succeed and then fail. And then something's going to come up from the work he, he's, that he did. I think that's what they say. Right. But, right. And that, and yeah, exactly right. Here's the thing though. Their, their motivations are kind of beside the point. We've always known yeah. about them. Their right. default. What's what's really interesting is that there's an extra player on the uh-huh. field, and we kind of knew about him because uh, at the end in Citadel, um, Talos gives him a counterfeit coin. So we're we from that we understand that his future self, we assume his future self, but actually no, uh, but we assume his future self has come back in time and. Um, attended one of the plays and and left the coin, right? But we, I think the reason I misunderstood it, and I think the reason most people misunderstand it is because they're carrying their own understanding of how time travel stories go from movies like 12 Monkeys uh-huh. and Planet of the Apes. They mm-hmm. misunderstand how it's working here. Uh-huh. So... Anyway, this this understanding of the plot is really significant, and I I wonder, I, I kind of wonder, did did Michael really understand how significant it was? Because this has completely overturned my understanding of these first twelve chapters. I and I'm, I'm curious to see how it will affect my understanding of the of the chapters going uh, forward mm-hmm. as well. I, I I think maybe you didn't because I think you're a reasonable person. <laughs> I think you're a reasonable person and you're not inclined to write war and peace from a couple of random torn out pages of a diary. (laughs) But by chance, you toss this theory into the radioactive soil 
that is me. <laughs> and voila, this wonderful souffle has been revealed. <laughs> Yay. Well, here's the thing. Here's, here's what this theory does. It invites us to consider how the life of the first Severian, the Severian that grew up without a conciliator religion, without a new son religion, without a claw, without miracles, how his life was different from the Severian of the story we read. And what is further remarkable to me is how much it is possible to know that. Uh -huh. Wolf has, has basically written two separate plots. And to understand how the Severian we're reading about is being manipulated, you have to understand what the default timeline was. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one question that I still have about it is whether or not, because of the way that the passage reads at the end of Citadel, it's not clear to me whether the first Severian passed the test or not. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Um, and I actually, I feel like, I mean, honestly, what I, what I hope is the case, because I actually feel like it's a better story, is that the first Severian didn't pass the test, but maybe figured out how he could get himself to pass the test, which was basically to create this, the, the process of a conciliator and to have that and to have Severian live out that promise and sort of say, if you, you know, if you fulfill basically kind of like say, if you fulfill the goodness that I see in you and you believe in it, because there's all this other stuff that's going to prove to you that it could actually be the case, then you could become, then you could pass the test in the end. Now, those are two significantly different things um, mm -hmm. because, you know, I, and I feel like it's this, if the first Severian passed the test, he wouldn't really need to go through this whole process. Um, but it, I, it makes more sense that he would need to sort of create all the circumstances in which Severian could eventually come to, to find this idea of the conciliator as an ideal or as something that he wants to work for and to believe in some sort of magic miracle that's there with the claw and all the other things it promises that could be there. Then, then I guess we get some questions of, well, then isn't the fountain, how the power all happens and, mm -hmm. and how would that first Severian have, have gotten that power there? That's a, that, that's sort of a more mechanical question, but I'm personally interested in the idea of the first Severian having failed, but figured out how he could make Severian to come because what that also means then is that you're sort of got a you have a story here in which all that level of the divine and the transcendent doesn't come from outside but is actually coming from inside mm -hmm. this world and that's pretty cool that's a, a pretty neat thing but that's more of a, a textual thing that we could decide maybe which is more likely yeah. well I kind of I, I kind of agree it's a better story that way yeah <laughs> that, that's the way but I'm not so sure that that's what do you think Michael I think that that is a, an excellent standard story. And I think that Gene is not writing that. I think in a usual time travel story, the time traveler is the active one, not the passive one. So right off the bat, we're looking at, this is, this is a really a different way of, of looking at even that basic thing. And that's why, that's why we're so in the dark as to that side of things that he, and you can see why it's more it's more engaging as a fiction to read about the actions of the guy sweating over the thing and oh here's a problem sure. and now I have to do this now I have to do that 
Sure, Whereas sure. I think what's happening here is the results are the same. The, the new sun comes and destroys the old planet. Mm-hmm. It's just the method of getting there is all we're changing. And, and, you, and you might say, well, to what, who does this matter to? It only matters to the one who's doing the destroying. It's all, it's all, well, here's the, mm, oh, it's all, that's interesting. it's all, it's all for him. And, and that makes it seem exactly. solipsistic, but it's like the, the people in Yassad don't care. They just want the thing done. It gets done. They don't care. So this is all his, um, the first Severian's private self-improvement. How can I, take this sad song and make it better kind of a thing. <clears throat> Even if I'm the only one who's going to hear it to know that I did all I could. So it, yes, it's, 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 you know, that's the thing. That's the thing about this is that when I, in any instance, and I think I, where I can detect that the first Severian has come in and changed something. It, as far as I can tell for the motivation, the motivations are always personal. And we'll kind of get into that, but it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it, he's, he's going back, he's tinkering, he's making things better along the way. And, uh, in some, for some people, in some people, <laughs> some people, I think maybe he makes things worse, but that's the, you know, that's the net he's made, he's improving his own life, I think. Right. But, but improving it in the sense of, improving him i mean he's it's not a oh i have to stop the madman that i will become it's not that kind of a thing yeah no 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 yes the outcome is the same the outcome will be like that it's just to do the same thing but with a different it's a tricky it's a really tricky thing but it it's pretty thought-provoking and i don't know so let's talk about the elements of the story of severian that we have in the book of new sun that might have been different in the original Severian. All right. Sounds good. So first Severian. Born in the Madison. Is that right? He says so. Is son of Owen and Catherine? Probably, yeah. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how else could he be? Now this already changed. See, I've in, in, I've in constructed an elaborate theory from uh in chapter eleven for how Catherine got to the Madison, but that's going to have to be be tweaked. It's going to have to be changed now in in very specific ways. For one thing, I I said, well, you know, she ran away f- from the Pellerines. Well, there are no Pellerines. Right, story. right. So, you know, I, I've, that has to be tweaked. Um, let's see, we can skip the drowning in the guile for for now. Sarah, Severian himself acknowledges that the first Severian not drowning is a mystery. So maybe we can come up with some explanations for that in a little bit. But I argue that the first Severian did not encounter Vodalus that night. And here's an, ex- here's an example of how you can see how things were different because the second Severian wasn't sure the next day whether he encountered Vodalus or not. Interesting. Uh-huh. So, all right. So does the first Severian encounter Triskely? I doubt it. No, in fact, yeah. Well, if, if yeah. he does, well, yeah. See, well, he wouldn't, that gets into it, it, the first Severian wouldn't be able to resurrect him, right? So even if he did, he would have encountered him just as a corpse. 
Right. Right. So he, exactly. We we all assume that he did. Right. Or or yeah. Or he may have the first Severian may have uh, you know met him while visiting the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Maybe that you know it was like that kind of thing. Like and or I, I do have the sense that the dog may have been with him, the first Severian up at the front uh, when he was up going beyond Thrax, but that's just a weird kind of shadow because he has that belief that, oh, well, maybe maybe my dog went off with somebody who then went off to the front. Oh, things, that's right, yeah. Things like that. Yeah, well, he can't, he can't, um, he can't resurrect him because the power, that power comes from right. the new son and the first Severian hadn't achieved right. that power yet. But I just want to make sure we're not losing people. Some people might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The second Severian, that is the Severian of the book we're reading, also has not achieved the new sun yet. It's reaching back in time to give him that power. Ah, you see? But according to this understanding, it is reaching, it is because the first Severian already achieved the new sun, passed the test. But second Severian of the Book of the New Sun doesn't know it. He's having his life manipulated by the first Severian. So the first Severian is never going to carry the claw. He'll never heal or resurrect in his own time. It's not a deterministic concept of time. Exactly. Like the one we're used to seeing in the movies. Yes. Wolf's concept is not deterministic. Severian goes back. He changes things. He still has an opportunity to choose differently. Right. There's he encounters Master Ash, and there's an alternate future that Master Ash lives in. So you know he could still choose. He's the first Severian has the power of the New Sun, I think, because it's in the it's in the first Severian's past. Right, and just to kind of clarify that for for, for well for ourselves, but for, for anybody else too. <laughs> so that also would answer one of the questions that. Second Severian, the Severian of the book that we read, who's writing everything, says multiple times he doesn't really get how the claw works. He can't figure exactly. out why it seems to work sometimes and not some other times. Yes. And actually, the answer to that is because first Severian is basically deciding when to use the power of the, the new son to work and when not to because he wants Severian to go through a certain passage. So to go back to Michael, the the terms that you used, yeah, in a lot of ways, what we're reading then is a passive story where we find out that actually our protagonist wasn't always really making very many choices, that it was actually first Severian behind there who was making those choices, like when when the claw would work, when it wouldn't. And that makes its... um, inconsistency is actually consistent, but from a totally different person's perspective. When Wolf does put that in the very last chapter, I mean, even if you sort of read that and think, oh, that's pretty clearly him sort of decoding what happens, then yeah, you do have to go back and reread so much to just figure out how it might have happened. Oh yeah, yeah, it completely changes. And now more so than ever, whereas before I was saying, oh wait, this little reference here, did I forget that? Let me go, and now I say, oh no. No, he's Wolf is inviting us to do something entirely different in this story. So I think that the first Severian did not encounter Triskali. Okay. And I base this on thinking, okay, well, if he doesn't encounter Triskali, how is the story different? And the story for the first Severian is obviously different. He doesn't encounter the atrium of time. 
So based on, I kind of use that method to decide what his his motive was. Right. In fact, I would I would double what you're saying by saying that the fact that this the name for the dog is a heavy Apollo symbol, therefore it doesn't belong in the in the life of the first one. Hmm. You see what huh. I mean? No. Go on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, just that you know. In other words. Um, Things, things that look like that um, would be things coming in later. So we're saying that the first Severian basically was um, a much rougher, much crueler, uh, you know, swashbuckling mm-hmm. Conan kind of adventurer. He was, he was probably exiled for having carnal relations with the prisoner or something like that, something kind of scandalous, but not worthy of anything worse. And so they, they kicked him out for his inability to control his sexual impulses. And then he he heads north to, you know, because he has been exiled to that city. And then from there, you know, certain points, I think, which are not covered, because like we said, the points that were were established in the famous um, p- passage that we're talking about. He was raised by the torturers, then he was sent to the city, then he fled the city, and the, even though he didn't carry the claw, he went north, etc. But I think that I think certain points in between they do match up. But I'll I'll give you the dog uh, because, <laughs> like I say, since it has the, an Apollo thing about it, uh, that seems like the equivalent of like the graven images in the. Uh, in the mausoleum or something like that, where this is the huh. the kinder, gentler Severian that is being fashioned out of the rough and rude first Severian. That's an interesting way of going about it. That sounds like that sounds like something I would have said. Um, but the reason I thought it was okay, he didn't encounter the atrium of time, so obviously the whole point of this is that he will encounter the atrium of time and he will encounter Valeria and, and something else had changed. I, I, I suggested when we did chapter four that Valeria had adopted Triskley and wasn't telling him, but now I think, no, it was, it was the first Severian who adopted him there. And I don't know. He gets it. Finally gets a dog for the first time. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so something else. Let's see. What else? Dorcas. Dork. There's no Dorcas for the first Severian. Yep. And then once again, why, why is he doing this? I think it's very personal. Yep. It's his, his grandmother. He wants his, he wants his father. His, he knows his father misses his mother. He wants to reunite his father and his mother. Well, I, I think I think it's even more than that because I think he does meet the rag selling girl and she Agia or Agia mm-hmm. and she is so very powerful in his life and it isn't until later he realizes what bad news she was. So that, <laughs> so that's why the first Severian is is pulling out all the stops and the only the only counter to the powerful rag shop girl is the guy's own grandmother as a a teenage blonde hottie. (laughs) But first of all, of all people, I mean, that, that lake 
has lots of bodies. <laughs> there must be been somebody besides his grandmother to introduce as his girlfriend. I think maybe that's just a side effect he didn't consider. No, and no, also, no, 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 oh, no, no. Well, no. think about think about Agia. Think about he gets up. He 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 goes. He wanders into the city. It's his first. It's literally what maybe fifteen hours since he's left the 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 tower. Yep. He immediately he he misses the directions and yep. ends up at an inn yep. and ends up in bed with Baldanders and, yep. and Talos. Yep. They get up. They go to breakfast. Yep. It's less than thirty minutes, and he encounters Asia. She immediately claps eyes on him and plots his death. Yeah. That's incredibly unlucky. Yeah. So I don't know. I th- I think maybe Asia is a manipulation as well. Well, she, I think she, I think the first Severian uh, didn't have all those bells and whistles on him. And uh, like I say, if he's, he's the rough adventurer, that's a kind of uh, <laughs> rough talent that she could do something with, you know, yeah. but at first it's just the, the cape, the cloak and all that stuff is what draws their attention. But then they see the sword and they're just like, we have to pluck this pigeon yeah. Because they they just think he's an armager, they think he's an they think the second Severian is an armager. They are being misled into revealing their criminal intent much earlier than if he were in normal clothes or didn't have. It's, it's the sword I think that really mm-hmm. really clinches the deal. I mean that that thing is just too much. They can't. It represents too much, and they they got to kill him at that point. But <laughs> but they've they've killed people before. They they're they're bad. They're bad little twins. Mm-hmm. So I think that the situation has been manipulated by the first Severian such that she is overwhelmed. Her her greed overpowers any idea of what may have been in the earlier version, she just looks at him and says, Oh yeah, this is, this guy's kind of hot. I bet we could, you know, kind of a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing is how I take, that's how I take it. Hmm. So I don't know if this is taking things too far, but the, the one point of the Aji and Agilis or Agila story that of course is still a big mystery is when Agilis takes off his mask and he uh-huh. still sees the bands, right? Uh-huh. As if he's still wearing a mask. So, of course, uh-huh. I immediately want to ask, well, wait a minute. <laughs> is that <laughs> is that then Severian wearing an, another mask in the moment? Oh, I, I, know the passage, I know the passage you're talking mm-hmm. about. And I think, quite honestly, I think that is more metaphorical. He's saying, I think you're still bullshitting Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, that's the other thing that I was wondering. Yeah, about that. I think that's how it and is. That, that certainly works. But, but again, let's let's just rewind to see. So, if just to try to put ourselves in the in the twins from the twins' point of view, they see this rich, fat pigeon walk up like that, and so they're trying to play his game, which is why he he the brother is wearing this skull, mm-hmm. and you know he's trying to like be freaky, but also be kind of like, hey. You're into masquerade. We're into masquerade too. Yeah. You know, just kind of like, just trying to get onto his what they what they perceive to be his wavelength. But but he's not on that page at all. He's he's actually a torturer. Which is, I mean, they have no idea. They absolutely have no idea. And so you have this clash of realities where he's like, wow, 
you know, I came in here for an argument or whatever, argument clinic kind of skit. <laughs> and, and they're just like at this completely, they're on other, other thing. And, and then as they, like I say, as they look at the, the sword and they're just like, this is, you know, I mean, yeah. I think something else is going on, but I want to hold off. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to come back here to this point. But what the obvious thing is the duel of sanguinary fields that if it happened at all, then he just won, right? Because he wasn't resurrected. And what I find really interesting is that when he's poisoned during that duel, he says something that this theory has forced me to reinterpret. He says, Something or someone was pressing against my back. It was as though an unknown stood behind me, his spine against mine, exerting a slight pressure. I felt cold and was grateful for the warmth of his body. Now, I've always read this as Severian's impression of landing on his back in the field when he collapses from being poisoned by the Avern. But this theory casts that text in a whole new light where, oh, it was somebody. <laughs> there, there was somebody behind him, and it was the first Severian. And Severian thinks back on the Claw's erratic power when he's praying. He says, I've tried to connect with my failures and my successes. I mean the times when I used the Claw and revived someone, the times I tried to, but life did not return. It seems to me that it should be more than mere chance, though perhaps the link is something I cannot know. So once again, the the sanguinary fields, either it didn't happen, either the duel didn't happen at all. Yeah, I don't think it won. happened. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I doubt it happened. I, I also I, doubt it happened. I don't, yeah, it can't because because I think that that the girl is his partner and, and I don't know, maybe they leave the brother behind to mind the shop, but I don't think that they have a break until much later. Mm -hmm. um, so that might, again, my my thinking is that um, Aegea and Heathor um, both became followers of Severian, um, uh -huh. and and so so that's how yeah. that kind of they they travel together. Um, they get up to Thrax, so like that. So because I think I think she she's they're they're, they're like a couple, and yeah. you can't do that if you just killed her brother. <laughs> and she's all mad about it. So you have to kind of untangle the, the thread that makes them have such a, a fast um, relation like that. Well, I think I, I think something else must be going on, but let's get in. I want to, I, I think I'm going to bring that up here in a little bit. Well, the next big, the next thing that yeah. would happen if we're going on from Asia would be Talos and Baldanders. Um, so does, oh, Talos and Baldanders. does the first Severian <laughs> encounter Talos and Baldanders? I don't, not at that time, for sure. He, it's a, I, cause I really feel like it's just an incredible coincidence that he ends up, you know, sharing a room with them. These two very significant people for the Commonwealth and for the heroes. So I think that has to be a manipulation for that to occur. I don't, but the, my, where I'm stymied is I don't understand what the motive exactly is. Let's see. What else? Master Ash. Does he meet Master Ash? The only reason he meets Master Ash is because the Pelerines send him there. Maybe. Maybe not. 
Right. And the only reason why the Pellerines send him there is probably because the first Severian tells the Pellerines to send him there. Yeah, that's probably true. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It, it, I mean, it's interesting to think about the first Severian and Master Ash, um, or even the first Severian and the Green Man. But uh, what about Little Severian? What's interesting to me is the times when he doesn't, when it doesn't work. For instance, uh, he obviously the first Severian could have resurrected Jolinta in the same way he resurrected uh, Miles later on. So why doesn't he resurrect Jolinta? Well, why would he? She was never part of the first Severian's life. She's possibly an impediment to getting to Thrax for the. And then she'd have to go back to being a skinny waitress. I, I'm not sure she'd thank him. And then why not resurrect little Severian? And this one, this one I do have a motto of, because second Severian, the Severian of the book said that if it had worked, he'd have taken little Severian to someplace safe and then gone off and cut his own throat because yep, yep. then he could, yep. that would have meant he could have resurrected Thecla, yep. but why not resurrect Thecla? Well, right. because he needs to have Thecla to be part of Severian for him yep. to be the man who passes the test. She's the yep. Holy Spirit of his Christ. Yep. And that brings up something uh, something else. Oh, wait, I don't want to do that yet. Also, <laughs> the Magician's Village. You remember the Vision's Village with their sure. religion against the new sun? Sure. They have a symbol, like an anti-claw, a rooster's head with its eyes pierced out to prevent him from seeing the new sun. And Severian scoffs, ha ha, ignorant primitives thinking objects like that have magical powers. Wait until they see my scientific, magical, religious gem. <laughs> and so when Severian is battling the magician, he has this sense of the magician building a cage around his mind and he fights it with the power of the claw. Does that mean that the magician has his own time walker? fighting with him behind the scenes. Well, now, now I thought you were just wondering whether the first Severian encountered those guys or not. And I, I don't know that again, that becomes, that becomes pretty tricky. All that, all that sequence um, when, because he's being pursued by Heathor and the, the monsters. And, and uh, I'm thinking for the first Severian, they were on the same side, so that stuff doesn't happen. In fact, for all I know, they're already messing around with, you know, whipping up flying mounts and just flying around <laughs> or something. So, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of that, the trials and travails of the wicked mountain are kind of looped off. Somehow, mm -hmm. it seems like he does get up at Baldander's castle. I'll, I'll grant you that because it seems like even the first Severian probably fights him at that place, but but it's it's the less uh, dramatic route that they take or something, mm -hmm. and and they're probably just being Bonnie and Clyde the whole way, you know, like looting villages, burning <laughs> cottages and stuff, and just just being really bad. Okay, well maybe I'm gonna, but okay, this brings us to something. I want to talk about this theory at a literary level. I mentioned Thecla, the Claw as the Holy Spirit in the Christ. So this reading of yours completes the Christ figure of Severian in a way that it was always incomplete before. We have Severian, the conciliator, the Christ figure, or as you know, first Timothy calls him, calls Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, right? So in this picture, 
where is the father? The first Severian here gives us the father, three separate persons who are the same substance. Severian, the first Severian, Thecla, three in one, holy trinity. Yep. Right. This is, it's so much better theologically. In the Gospels, Jesus consistently says that it's God the Father who does these works yep. in him. It yep. just, it, it gets muddy as well because he says, you know, the Son of Man can forgive sins and he is the Father and the Father's in him. But still, this buttresses the Severian Trinity Christological thread. Right. And, and just to stop there for a moment and say what's so interesting about that is, um, from my earliest readings, I could see that the masters at the tower, you already had a kind of a trinity there because you've mm-hmm. got the old one, you've got the younger one who's kind of like the son, and then you've got the dead one who's kind of like the Holy Ghost, oh. right? So I could see how... Well, that's, Oh, that kind of works with uh, Zeus, Hades, and uh, Poseidon. Yeah, that's brothers. true too, but yeah. So anyway, I, I, I could see that there was already... A kind of thing like that um, in place right from the earliest chapters, but like you're saying, to suddenly get around to the point of saying, hey, wait a minute, the first Severian, the guy who is always some period of time, I mean, it's at least 10 years in the future, he he knows how things go, he knows when things happen, um, and then, yeah, like you say, realizing, wait a minute, Thecla dwelling within Severian, that, that is, that's the Holy Spirit inside of Jesus. Right. Well, and inside of every Christian as well. But, but Jesus, his ministry, he was the only one on the planet who had it. And then you kind of go, wow, wait a minute. And then, yeah, that all snaps together. And yeah, it's, it's uh, it's pretty intense, and and then the idea that I mean in Scripture Jesus says because they say well you know when when are the end days coming and Jesus says pretty plainly I do not know the Holy Spirit does not know only the Father knows right and so it's like whoa so even though they're they're three and they're co-equal and they you know they have this three in one kind of a thing but the information is there is a partition there where only the Father knows the the end of the world uh, timescale right. and, and the day when it all comes down. So now there's two places in Citadel that I think really this this kind of this kind of makes this whole thing mesh. Um, in chapter ten, he's supposed to sit down and pray, and he uh-huh. says, "And I, knowing no prayers, spoke without sound to someone who seemed at times within me, and at times, as the angel had said." infinitely remote. So we have this idea of father, son, same hypostasis, yet distinct. And then later in chapter 14, when he's returning the claw to the Pelerines, he says, I seemed to see with a vision increasingly clear through the chink in the universe to a new universe bathed in golden light where my listener knelt to hear me. What had seemed a crevice in the world had expanded until I could see a face and folded hands and the opening like a tunnel running deep into a human head that for a time seemed larger than the head of Typhon carved on the mountain. And I was whispering into my own ear. And when I realized it, I flew into it like a bee and stood up. (laughs) So that's very confusing passage. But what it does get the idea is that he's sitting down 
and he's he's praying and he realizes that in a sense he's praying mm. to himself. It's troublesome theologically, but from a literary standpoint, it completes this whole picture. This is the end of side one. Turn the record over to hear side two.